Welcome to The Atypical Leader with Rick Brennan, where we talk about harnessing what makes you unique and maybe even a little odd, while at the same time dismantling the notion that you have to be a certain type of person or act a certain way to be an effective leader. Definitely a leader, not a follower. I like the sound of this. It's time for us atypical leaders to come out of the shadows and learn to be proud and confident in what makes us different. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of who I am. Atypical leader starts now. Hello, everyone. Rick Brennan here, and welcome to the Atypical Leader Podcast. I'm all by myself here today. Uh, Judy had some technical difficulties and will not be able to join us, but the good news is is that she's on her way to Costa Rica, and uh, she'll be live here in the studio in the next coming episode, so that's all good news, and we'll be all ready to go. This week, we were very lucky to have Claire Kumar of Happy Space Podcast with us to share her point of view and knowledge and experience on the subject of neurodiversity, leadership, productivity, sensitivity, and so on and so forth. So good morning, Claire. Hi. Hi, Rick. Good to see you. Nice to see you again. Today, we have as a guest, Claire Humar. And am I saying your name right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm awful for getting names wrong. Well, I'll tell you what, it's interesting, right? Because I've grown up saying Claire Kumar. Like Harold and Kumar, the movie. Oh, yeah, go to White Castle. (laughs) That's right. If I'm in India, I would probably hear more often Claire Kumar. So I'm fine with however you'd like to pronounce it. Okay, well, there we go. Everybody knows. And you do a podcast called Happy Spaces, right? Happy Space. Yeah, the Happy Happy Space Space. podcast. Okay, and we've had the opportunity, well, I've had the opportunity to to be on your podcast, which I guess is going to air the end of the month and it was fun and and it was i appreciate that you having me on judy was supposed to join us but uh unfortunately she's had some technical difficulties which we couldn't iron out so she's going to skip today so hopefully i can muddle along here and we can have a good conversation without judy judy usually keeps me in line you know and that sort of stuff, but I'll try my oh, best. That, is that my job now? Rick? Oh, you got it. Now it's twofold. You are the interviewee and the the boss. <laughs> okay. Let's have fun. We'll dance together and see how we do. Okay, cool. So maybe we could start off by explaining what your podcast is all about and what you do and the people that you service. And, and- yeah, sure. So my podcast and inclusivity. I've been working as a productivity catalyst, a coach, a speaker. Uh, training, workshops, all of that kind of thing for about 15 years now. And also because of lived experience personally and what I witness going on in the corporate world, I've decided to look at inclusivity very closely too. So now my work is with leaders and their teams and looking at how a leader can get the best performance out of everyone on their team. Okay. Can you just dig deeper into inclusivity? Because that's, that's very broad. Are you talking every spectrum, every group? Because I know that you focus somewhat on people with sensitivities. Uh, my lived experience is that I'm highly sensitive. Yeah. And so I can speak a lot as well to people who will consider themselves neurodivergent. We can talk more about that and explain more about that. But I decided as well, I live with an invisible illness. I'm a woman, um, menopause or post-menopause now. Um, So there's lots of lift experience where I realized there were intersections with communities that have been marginalized. And so when I say inclusivity, 
I started out by looking at high sensitivity in particular, but I want to zoom out a little bit and help leaders really think about how to think about their workforce and be more inclusive in a much broader way. So we've been marginalizing around age. We've been marginalizing around race and gender. We know that for a long time, but we're often excluding people because of the way we design spaces and cultures. And I think we have a wonderful opportunity to see that more clearly and operate differently as leaders with our own subcultures and organizations. We have a big opportunity to do that. And I know from our conversation previously, you had a very rich understanding of the human experience and uh, it was part of your leadership strength. So I, I think I'm looking for more leaders to be open and tap into that that approach to understanding people and inviting their performance. Yeah, so we're sort of, I guess, our podcast is along the same line. I mean, certainly going parallel to yours. And we talk about neurodiversity and in being inclusive of neurodiverse individuals. But more than that, it's more about seeing the strengths that people with neurodiverse skills can bring to your company and how they might align better to leadership than the typical mindset. For example, as we talked the last time, is, you know, I've lived a life of, of bobbing and weaving and working with people and developing certain strengths in one direction because of what people would call my limitations. As someone who's a typical thinker who has a high IQ and all the degrees have a different skill set and they, they approach leadership from a different direction. Not good or bad, it's just simply your life experiences drive you down a certain path. And that means we tune in and we notice a lot. A lot of times, too, with people with neurodivergent ways of being or invisible challenges, disabilities, a lot of people have had to work a little harder to achieve the same things. And so that's, there's some tenacity and character build in, in having to climb uh, a, a higher hill, if you will. Yeah, for sure. And I think that isn't that the opportunity is for... Like you say, we work harder because people really don't get us. Almost like they don't recognize the power that we have and the experience that we live, but they see what we don't have. Can be. I mean, if I'm going to just hone in on sensory sensitivity right now, this this temperament trait of high sensitivity, the whole word sensitivity for a lot of people brings up a negative connotation about being needy, about being high strung, about being temperamental, rather than looking at, as you point out, the great gifts that come in with the power of noticing the deep empathy that goes along with the trait, the, you, you know, the, the depth of processing, which is um, incredibly powerful. And so I think it's, I, I think there's some opportunity here in terms of education around the fullness of experience with different ways of being, whether it be ADHD, different levels of autism, um, high sensitivity. There are many different ways of processing information and, and relating to our worlds. And often you, you'll know probably the term spiky profile that you see strengths in some areas and challenges and struggles in other areas. And if we can look for the, for the strengths and appreciate them and also make some room then to have people have, in large part, I think it's greater autonomy to control their environment so they can be more successful, we'll have more people contributing to the workforce. Right. And in fact, I had a, a, an old coach of mine, Carlo Davovich. He and I have had many arguments about testing in the workplace. And in fact, he was one of the designers of the Pathfinder personality test. 
and which is used by many, many companies. And we debate and we debate. And one thing we finally came to an agreement on is just what you're talking about. I could take a test that I'm so strong in one attribute of my life that it supersedes all the other perceived weaknesses I could have. And that's what I think that leadership and, and even us pe people with sensitivity to neurodiversity need to focus on is what is and find that superpower that we have that can drive our success. Interesting one, right? Because supersede, as I've seen people struggle to be successful in the corporate world, there are some challenges which have consequences on others. And we need to understand how those how those appear and how those affect others. And we need to be aware of it. I'm, I'm thinking of um, someone potentially with ADHD who needs a lot more stimulation and so they need to shake their leg. Well, if that shaking the leg is shaking the table and it's it's taking the, the attention away for somebody else, probably need to talk about it. So right. I think the strengths need to be appreciated. The struggles need to be, we need to find a way to deal with those and they need not to be deal breakers. We need to be curious enough to say, okay, does that mean you'd push back from the table so you can, you can shake your leg, but now you're not disrupting everybody else. Right, of course. So, but it's the sense of celebrating what's there and working with the challenges, I think, is the real opportunity. Exactly, for sure. Now, I'm very interested, as we talked last time, you said you would put a program together. So I think it was called Happy Space Work Style Profile? So yeah, the profile is there and it's available now for people to take to help articulate what conditions invite your best work, your best performance. And so it gets into things like, what's your chronicity? What time of day do you do your best work? Uh, whether it be focused work or collaborative work, tell me about your processing style and whether you, you know, you really benefit from a project being broken down and having clear deadlines. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't benefit from that, but it may be absolutely critical for you. Right. So it, it looks at a number of different things and different ways of being. And it prompts some reflections so that you end up with a view of Wow, all of these things, even even including ergonomics, for example, all of these things are then able to become design parameters for how you sculpt the way you interact with work. I would think that's also a challenge, isn't it? Is that Johnny gets to do this and Susie gets to do that, and why do they get to do those things or have those mm -hmm. you know advantages that I might? And doesn't that invite some sort of a conflict? So I would think communication would be critical, really understanding why we're doing this and why that's required for other people and why so much not for you. And, and so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's redefining what fair is. And if we think of, you know, somebody's bringing a pizza to the table and everybody should get the same amount of pizza, we that's what I grew up with. Everybody should be treated exactly the same. Right. But if we look at equity over equality, then we're saying, well, you know what? Somebody who needs, there's an example I often show in my leadership training, which is a picture of three people trying to look into a baseball park and you'll see three blocks. And if you give everybody one block, you'll see one person can see over the fence perfectly. That block helps them. The second person just gets to the level of the fence and their eyes are over. The third person is still underneath that. Well, what if you gave that second person, the first person didn't need a block. What if you gave that block to the third person? Now you've got everybody able to see over. So if we're able to think and really redefine what fair is, and have those conversations, then we can preempt the resentment because we'll have out of compassion 
for everybody being able to contribute, which is a fundamental belief of mine, then we can invite those contributions. If we don't redefine fair, we will have resentment. So it's definitely part of the conversation. Right. So it goes right back to the basics of building a team. I mean, before we... We have to believe we're all heading in the right direction and, and believe that. And just like you described those three different levels of people looking over the fence, that it's all to our advantage if we can all see over the fence and we become more productive and more successful collectively as a group. That's exactly it. And that redefinition of fair is a starting point. And, and often until that picture is painted, people just, they don't see it. And they will come back to that early definition of fair was I need to be treated exactly the same as everybody else. Well, how do you stimulate some people starting this process? I mean, you know, everything's good. Everything's working. I'm used to, I'm comfortable in my comfort zone. How do we break through that and show people that there's, there's more, there's an easier way, there's more, there's a more inclusive way? Well, I think there's some natural tension to jump off right now. I, it, you know, if you follow the media, it's certainly hyping the distance between leadership and many employees around how to work. So we have a lot of leaders mandating back to the office and and wanting people to be absolutely physically back together in the same space. And you have an employee set that says, you know what, I really value some autonomy and I value my remote work and I do not want to embrace three hours a day of my, my commute, depending on where you live. So there's natural tension there to say, yeah, we have some challenges. And what I'm proposing is this workshop profile is a, an opportunity for people to be able to better understand each other to start. But then I also recognize that leaders have a heavy load right now and need some support in navigating how do we have this conversation because it feels very volatile. You have leaders not wanting to open up the conversation because managing expectation is very difficult. And at the same time, you have their fear of consequences, feeling shame. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that people keep quiet. I've kept quiet for years about things that when I've finally spoken them, I see the value in it. But until you feel safe enough to do so, many, many things stay quiet and leaders don't know what they don't know. And I think therein lies, and it's probably a tough sell, right? Because, but when I can make the point that, and, and usually it's one-on-one -on -one conversation with the leader, yeah, well, I got to tell you, as a, as a manager, wherever I was in my career, the one thing I was incapable of doing was mm -hmm. keeping quiet. Now, but last time we had talked, you had asked me that question. Jeez, so what do you think is, is how do we develop relationships or build strong teams now that everybody's working remotely? And I dearly didn't have a good answer. And I, I, you know, my kids were here visiting for the holidays and I asked them, so what do you guys think of that? Because both of them work remote. And I said, because you want to build relationships. And, and their point is almost exactly what you're saying. You just don't understand. My generation doesn't think like your generation. We're not, we're more capable of developing relationships online through different things than you can even perceive. And I got the point, not that I can say I truly understand it because I haven't lived that life, but I certainly get their point. And that's what you have to almost as a leap of faith a little bit to we're not the new generation. And no matter how hard we try, we really will never truly understand the way that their work processes work, how they've adapted through their lifetime into doing things remotely. And I just, it kind of blew me away and I had to take a step back and realize, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, I think the value of coming together is absolutely magical. 
But what I saw in a lot of organizations is having been part of dispersed teams 25, 30 years ago, is the budget was cut for the getting together in person. It was the first thing to go. It's like, sure? you know, so I agree with you. It's it's wonderful to build those relationships with some in-person experience. You've got a fund connection throughout. You've got a fund connection. And if you've got a team that can get together, look at what you're doing to invite people to build relationship in that getting together, not just be task focused. And I think we need to nurture both along and then we can really reap the benefits of the the unspoken, the spontaneous, spontaneous uh, connection, the conversations that happen. The, it's the getting to know each other outside of the work that fosters an understanding and an I've got your back mentality. If I, if I know more about you, I can care more about you. Right. So it, it almost, because we can't, because of course I've been in the corporate world and when we have a, we bring the group together for a big meeting, we can't help but fill it with meetings. Meetings on this right. and meetings on that. And it's really, really not about relationship building. And I think that even when, if companies get back to bringing groups together, even smaller groups together, they got to rethink the agenda. Because this has got yeah. to be more about relationship building than information sharing. And we just can't help ourselves. We've got people here. I've got to share information. Well, you can send me a memo. I can read that. You know, I've, I've given full day workshops. Everybody's eyes glaze over around 2.30, 3 o'clock and they're done. So I don't go and do, I will not do a eight in the morning till five workshop again. We need recovery. We need mind wandering time. We need a variety of experiences to really thrive and come back refreshed and then bring our best selves to whatever we're trying to do. We, you're right. We, we, we look at the opportunity and think the more we can put in the better. We live in a more is better culture. And we have to, I love Greg McEwen's word essentialism. And if we think about, gosh, what's essential? Well, rest is essential. So what am I going to plan in around rest and connections essential? So what am I going to do around those things? What are the non-negotiables? And how do we fit everything else around it? But that's interesting. You say rest is essential, which flies really in the, in, I would say, the typical thinker. I mean, you know, we still, in many cases, uh, love the workaholic and what they do and working those long hours. Uh, I know it never worked for me and I never did it only because almost because I was selfish. I wanted to be successful. And I knew if I worked long hours, the more I worked, the less productive I became. We'll generate better players. Right, right. So if we look at the physicality and if we if we, we laud our sports teams, that's one place leaders might think to look to say, oh, how do I take this and apply this in the working world. And and what are we, do we even know what the optimal amount of focus time is before the brain needs a break? And how are we, how are we allowing people to do that? The number of people I coach with back-to-back meeting schedules that don't have time. I know, I, I know people that work in call centers and they don't have any emotional recovery time after a really difficult phone call, for example. It's, we expect humans to be robots and it's, it's not reasonable or the way to um, invite the greatest efficiency or Oh, 100. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And then, then to layer on top of that, I don't think there's a set formula for everybody to take breaks. 
everybody mm-hmm. has their own needs, and that's what we got to get. Yep. I mean, I might need five minutes every half hour. Someone might need 10 minutes every hour and so on and so forth, whatever it might be, just to walk around and do nothing. And, you know, for me, it drives productivity. Going and having a talk and having a laugh. And, and I think at the last time, actually, we talked about think tanks and how, what, that's the most foolish concept ever created. Okay, everybody get in the room now, think. Well, give me a break. I mean, you you think when you're, you know, you come up with those great ideas when you're mowing the lawn or washing the car, when your your brain is relaxed and all of a sudden those great ideas pop into your head. And that's the way, you know, we I think we have to evolve in our thinking. It's interesting. I think it's different for different people too. I know some of my best language has popped up when I'm explaining something to someone. I always say tune in before you lean in. Right. So the the biggest opportunity first is to be self-aware. And that's why I created the work style profile to, to facilitate that piece. Right. So if you're at least aware of what you need now, it can be a design parameter. So what does that mean? Okay. So now I'm aware. What do I want to do with it? It means now understanding what your objectives are. Hopefully you're choosing work that is aligned to your values so you don't have conflict and tension and resentment building because you're not doing work you're meant to do. But then it's it's being able to have the conversations to co-create the right construct of work so that you can deliver what you've been contracted to deliver. And I think that um, involves a whole bunch of skills too. That's That's learning how to speak up Uh, in a way that self-advocates and doesn't alienate at the same time. So there's, there's a lot of finessing around conversation and having the conversation so you're not triggering fear, anger, resentment in somebody else as you non-negotiables are. And you realize it's not sustainable to stay there. This is how I left the corporate world because I was being told I needed to commute Ah, gosh, easily two hours, sometimes more every day to get to work. And my job was 90% on the phone. And I just said this, you know, I'll I'll offer to come in half the time. And for any meeting that you want, I'll be there. I'm going to be there. But to to mandate me there to be there um, and spend that extra time was was too depleting for me with two small children. So I knew for me then that was it. And I start my podcast with telling the story of how I fell down the stairs in 2007 November and I just that's what that's was the big wake up I mean I can't I can't continue doing this this is not this is not working it's not a reasonable ask and so that's I that's what's led me through noticing in the pandemic more people got really in touch they were able to tune in to what they needed and now they're more aware of it and then we have this tension and I'm here to help leaders figure out how to deal with the tension and not go to a control response and mandate and just shut down and remove autonomy, but to to move towards compromise and invite the team to move towards compromise through a lens of compassion from both sides. Hallelujah. Wow, Claire, this is awesome stuff. What I'd like to do is maybe break our discussion down into two different segments. Let's finish it off here today, and maybe we'll do the second part next week, just so we don't overload myself and the listeners. In recap, we discussed how to maximize your team's performance by understanding the people around you and learning how to get the best out of them based on the skills that they possess. It's as Claris puts it, it's tune in before you lean in. So let's continue our conversation next week with Claire Kumar from Happy Space Podcast. 
on the Atypical Leader. Thanks for joining us today and listening to another episode of the Atypical Leader. If you haven't already done so, like, share, and follow me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. By liking and sharing, you will help other atypicals find all of us. Strategies and strengths of what make us all unique. Keep listening and remember, take charge and push away those self-doubts. Leverage what we're talking about. Be confident in who you are and proud of what makes you unique. So join me, Rick Brennan, and my co-host, Judy Sims, on the next episode of The Atypical Leader. And don't forget to get your copy of the book, The Atypical Leader, Harnessing the Power of Neurodiversity, on Amazon. To learn more about us, leadership, and neurodiversity, please go to our website, atypicalleader.com. Thanks for listening. Let's do it again next week. 